Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan and David Scott is still on assignment. Uh, last time I saw he was in Trieste. If you're listening, Dave, we hope you've had a, you've had a great holiday. I'm looking forward to seeing you back soon. Uh, Our guest this week on the show is Con Mikalakis, who's the Chief Investment Officer at Statewide Super. Con, great to have you back on the show. Great to be back. Thank you. Look, uh, Con uh, is one of the rare guests uh, from the buy side uh, that we, we get on the show. Uh, he's uh, had a fantastic career in financial markets. Uh, he has got a degree in mathematical science from the University of Adelaide, a master's of science from the University of London, and he's also done postgraduate study at the Said Business School at the University of Oxford. And uh, as, as part of his career, before he joined Statewide Super, he was also, you know, he worked for a, an American bank uh, running its Asia, op- Asia operations, and uh, he was head of institutional business at Merrill Lynch in Australia. So uh, it's great to get your time, Con. Uh, and at Statewide, Con manages about $8 billion in assets uh, under management. Uh, it also happens that he's a, a, a big fan of hard rock music, so we're going to talk about that a little later. But we should talk about some serious stuff first. We're going to talk global macro, emerging markets risks, US dollar. We're going to talk central bank policy. Um, we'll ask Con to outline his assessment for a range of assets, including stocks and, uh, of course, Australian property. But first, it's Wednesday. And as we're recording, I've spent the last three days covering this chaos in Canberra. Uh, last week, we had Shane Oliver on the show, Con, and one of the things he was talked about was the importance of turning down the noise when it comes to investing strategy. Um, with all this, you know, this circus in Canberra, uh, and it looks at this stage like Peter Dutton might be leader of the Liberal Party by the end of the week, Peter Dutton or somebody else. Um, how do you think of, about all of that from, a, from an investing, investing perspective? Interestingly, being here the last couple of days in Sydney, we're just hearing a lot more of the fund managers that I talk to. The businesses are starting to just say, gee, there's a lot of noise coming out of Canberra. And the issue there is, well, there's a lot of noise. There will be an election. Who's going to be the opposition leader? Who's going to be the prime minister? What's going on? I think on the Labor side, they've got that sorted out in the opposition leader. But who's going to be the prime minister? When's the election? So it might hold back some investment from businesses. Certainly this week hasn't helped. Again, Australia is looking more like Southern Europe than it looks like Australia. Um, and uh, yeah, more people. you're hearing a lot more people complaining about, wow, there's too much noise in Canberra. It's one of the things that I think the, the Business Council uh, of Australia has been pretty poor at articulating, as has um, both sides of politics. On this, and the, the, I just think don't think they they grappled with it. Um, the policy uncertainty uh, creates very difficult environment for any company thinking about making an investment in Australia, and uh, that that causes all sorts of potential medium term problems for the economy because it's the initial investments that over the medium term create the jobs. So I think one of the things that is disconcerting about modern life is it's as if the timeframes are getting shorter. Investing timeframes are shorter. People want decisions quicker. And now it's infiltrated politics. So if the politic cycle is getting shorter and you're just chopping and changing people, you're chopping and changing front benches, you're chopping and changing leaders, you know, what's going on? You know, you're going from one cycle to another. How many prime ministers have we had now since 2007? It's you know, we're in a democracy, these things happen, but uh, you'd love some stability to come out of uh, Canberra and, and a response. I have a personal opinion. I would love to see four-year 
federal election cycles, not three. I mean, state election where I'm from in South Australia, it's every four years. I think that's a good thing. So, you know, you'd love to see it just a bit longer because you're two years into government and then you're one year into an election cycle. And if you're changing leaders, it's you're sort of double jeopardy, right? Well, it's well, just, well that's, that's it's right. crazy. So, like, with the US... Um, presidential election cycle they always talk about you know the one year you know your first year is the year when you can get something done then you're suddenly into the midterms which is where we're at now um and it looks like um let's say theoretical scenario we're we're a few months away yet um from from the from the midterms in the u.s but um, in november but Let's say the Democrats seize control back of Congress uh, and all of a sudden Trump's legislative agenda, uh, any of his reform plans kind of start to get stuck, right? Um, and I think you're right, you know, you know in, in Australia that time frame is much, much shorter, um, particularly if you're looking at maybe two and a half, three year uh, cycle, um, then, you know, you get some things done in your first year and then, you know, you've got to start ramping up then for and managing the politics. And what we've seen consistently in the last few parliaments been governments do things they become unpopular polls start to uh, start to dive on the two-party preferred the backbenchers get nervous and then they start fishing around for you know some somebody who's not the prime minister uh, who might be able to save them and lo and behold peter dutton yeah it's you know they had rake i don't know if anyone watches rake but you know he's gone from being a lawyer to a politician and a senator it's like it's starting to imitate art right and so i it's not good. Uh, they've got to sort it out. And, and the reason they've got to sort it out is, you're right, businesses do invest in the long term. People want to invest for the long term. And if this has taken the focus, it could. It hasn't happened, but it could derail investment plans. It could derail you know, long-term planning. And that would just be a shame if something as superficial as this it's not superficial, but you know something like changing leaders, you know, holds back investment or consumer confidence. We'll see when the data comes out after what's happened this week. If if that happens, I hope it doesn't, but we don't know. Um, look, given I've been looking at politics for most of the week, I've got to do a pretty big change of gears here to talk about financial markets. Um, but I was thinking, uh, you know, to make it easy for myself, one of the things I could do is just ask you about uh, retail super funds versus industry funds, right? <laughs> and let you make the running on it. Um, look, I know you talk about this a, a fair bit, um, but what's your main bugbear here? So, you know, we've had, you know, in- industry super has uh, come out comparatively clear uh, in this Royal Commission process and also through all sorts of other reviews that we see about returns, etc. Um, what, what is your main bugbear with the way that retail funds claim to be such strong performers versus um, the industry, the industry uh, level I suspect what surprised us in the Royal Commission, uh, and I'm only an observer, but retail funds have underperformed what we've seen is we've, they've underperformed. Um, they haven't thought long term in terms of long term asset allocation. They've used off the shelf products. Some of them have used in house products. Some of them thought about the distribution, not the members. Uh, this has all come out, and they don't look good, right? They're going to have to get their act together. The way they get act, their act together, the banks will sell off their wealth management. The non bank wealth management have to clean up their act. And um, I was surprised how bad it was. Uh, I didn't think it was that bad, but I was surprised how bad it was. The, the, the beauty of being an industry fund, I've never worked, you know, I've worked with fund managers, 
I've never really worked for a retail platform, and I joined statewide. I mean, it's ten years on the weekend since I've been at statewide. So it's my first ten years well, in an industry fund. Do you get a watch or something? I'll probably get a kick up the backside. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'd, who knows? A beer. Um, but I, I, I think that, you know, I've only worked for an industry fund. Look, it's long term. Yeah, yeah uh, the board is focused on the member outcome. We want to get good returns. We want to make sure members are allocating pr- appropriately. We want to do a, a good member engagement. We want to get them on the journey from accumulation to retirement. So our focus is on that. We don't have to pay a profit. We don't have to use uh, in-house products. We, we, we'll source what we what we want to source and we put it together. Surprise, surprise, that works. You know, the thing there is a thing called a sole purpose test, and I think the Royal Commission tested a few people on the sole purpose test. Do you think there's a wider challenge coming for super? Because as the total pool of assets under management keeps increasing right now, so we're uh, 2.6 trillion if you roll in self managed super and everything else uh, at this stage. Um, and the reality is that. It, it goes back to this question of percentage fees, right? I think is a big is a big part of it. Flat percentage fee um, being charged on very very large uh, aggregated funds where you've got hundreds of billions of dollars under management. Um, uh, percentage fees in those cases, you know, you get these positive jaws. You get this thing. There's no extra cost really as you go from say five, um, you know, a uh, hundred billion to one hundred and twenty or one hundred and thirty billion. Um, and the money's coming in every month uh, uh, in line with people's paychecks, uh, and those percentage fees are still getting clipped. And then there's a question about, like, when does this stop? Because you're talking with a couple of billion under a couple of billion, a couple of trillion in the pool, yeah. you've got tens of billions in fees. Um, do you think this is a, fees a reckoning? Fees are coming down. Mm-hmm. Active fees are coming down. Passive fees are coming down. Alternative fees. Your typical hedge fund. Back in the day, it was two and twenty. They're coming down to one and ten. Your active management fees, you know, to say for a hundred million dollar mandate, again, fifteen years ago would have been 60, 70 points, and they're now coming down to thirties. The fees are coming down. Um, funds are getting, uh, they're using their asset power or they're using their funds to lower fees. The internalization that some funds do now, statewide, won't internalize on term deposits terms of the strategic asset allocation with help of our asset consultant and we run some direct assets infrastructures direct so we don't i think that's happening i think that's playing out and i wouldn't be surprised if that happens quicker than people realize so that's that's definitely on the cards i think the bigger issue that you've realized it's 2.6 trillion the superannuation money went from a cottage industry startup industry to a cottage industry to a big industry to a huge big animal where effectively people are saying, you've got 2.6 trillion in the system. It's now becoming almost political capital. Mm. Where can you put your money? Can you do good things? Uh, How are you gonna do this? Are you doing good? You know, there's broader questions. Uh, As someone who's an allocator who uh, has an internal team, sits with the investment committee, the board, our asset and so on, who help decide decision, I like to keep it pretty simple. Let's worry about the sole purpose test, what's right for the member. Can we allocate appropriately? Can we meet our investment objectives? Can we have the debate versus active or passive? Is there proof of what we're doing? Does that work? And just just try and stay focused on that. And you said noise. There's noise in the political sphere. There's noise in the investment sphere. There's noise in the markets. There's just so much noise that you just got to just concentrate on what you're doing. And that it can be difficult because day to day, you can be told that you're either really good or you're an idiot. 
and, and yeah. markets just move move they gyrate you don't have that that uh, you don't have that comfort but you've got to you know you've got to think medium to long term so let's go into uh, how you're um, thinking about the world at the moment right so uh, everybody has a view on the impact of the various themes we're seeing playing out right we're going to talk about central banking in a while but obviously the big things that are happening uh, alongside that strengthening in the US dollar this emerging markets risk that's cropping up, you know, Chinese stocks falling to, which were very, looked very promising probably two years ago, you know, they were on the verge of uh, MSCI inclusion, inclusion, they're in there now. Um, but, um, you know, there was all the promise of the internet, of the Chinese internet tech stocks, the big growth in consumer demand, all the transformation in the, in the Chinese economy. Um, uh, that was all looking very promising. Now you've had this strengthening US dollar and there's other factors at play, like, individual um, like policy settings like we've seen in Italy and then and Turkey which are kind of feeding some of the problems for uh, other countries which are um, coming under pressure because of this strengthening US dollar um, but there's again there's a lot of noise in this um, so what are you do how are you making decisions as the the environment is sort of the macro environment is kind of changing um, have you changed your exposure to, to particular types of assets yeah, through sure. this process? Uh, let, let's break down the world. Um, there, there, there are a lot of things that worry you. There are things you don't see. There are things you see. There's just things that come out of the blue, right? You have to, that's life. But the, 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 the three things that you think you can identify, central banks around the world are moving to tighter policy. They're moving away from QE or they're tapering QE, or they're starting some sort of quantitative tightening, they're increasing rates. So banks around the world are starting to, and so they should, look where rates are, right? So rates are starting to slowly go up, that's the first thing. That has impact around the world, right? We've had this amazing bull run for seven or eight years, bar a little hiccup with tapering and Europe and all of that. But we've had this amazing cause by central bank liquidity. You know, rates are going down, asset valuations go up. Second, you're getting um, geopolitical issues because people are now being voted in who are more nationalist, much more populist, playing to their home base. So we live in a global world, but we're becoming much more localised. The world is becoming as more localised. We thought the internet, we thought social media, we thought the great expanse of the world, it's actually made us even more insular in some ways because we stick to our groups. We don't go and get the diversity. Like, you know, you have your free markets group, you have your old left group, you have the weird wacko group, you have the whole thing, but they stick to their own and they sit there and fight amongst each other uh, across across others, right? And that's that's a problem. It's causing geopolitical issues. It's causing trade tariff barriers. So rates are going higher. You're having these issues around the world being played out, including Australia. You know, the fringe elements are out there. Um, and then you've got high debt. The, the, the debt levels in the country are going up while rates are going up, while the world's becoming more insular. Plus, you've got a, a, a inequality at play, right? And so there are, you know, the thing about um, central banks is you have caused an asset valuation rehit. So if you own capital, you're an owner, you're a provider of capital, you've done really well. If you're living off an income, you're trying to buy a house or you're trying to save, you're not feeling great, right? If you've started off rich, you're a lot richer. If you're not that rich, unless you're going up the corporate ladder and making a ton of money. And so you're creating the inequality. Inequality creates these, these tensions, alternatives. Social tensions, And that's yeah. all feeding into the system, right? 
what do you do? Well, I think asset valuations are high around the world. I think interest rates are way too low. And it takes one or little things to, to, to force these cracks to appear. You want to diversify. So we've increased cash a bit at the margin. We're struggling with the whole yield curve things. But, you know, if the yield curves, if the long ends of most yield bonds would, would um, sort of spike up a bit, and you, you know, would probably be a buyer of bonds at the right levels. We're forcing By buying us, for a duration. Yeah, yeah, I mean, if, you know, Aussie 10 years were uh, given the set of economic conditions, and I'm a big conditional, right, given what we've got. I mean, that could be four for the wrong reasons or three and a half for the right reasons. But, you know, if bond yields were to go up a bit, that'd, that'd be a good protection in the portfolio. Most of us have moved into alternatives. You know, we're doing, we've done unlisted property, we've done infrastructure, we're buying alternative managers, whether they're skill-based, what we call alpha managers, um, hedge funds, call in other words, private equity, venture capital. So there's just a lot more things, direct lending. I mean, as banks have come back because of regulation, you have, there is alternative sources of credit. There are private markets. So you're tapping different sources. The complexity is going up. But that's part of the world you live in. And to not play in that, why shouldn't you? Why shouldn't you be involved in direct lending? Why shouldn't you be involved in special situations? So the asset allocation is changing away from your traditional listed structures, embracing the fuller set. And you're going to see more and more diversification as you do that. One of the elements of just being a bigger superannuation system, well, there's more money going offshore. Right. So there's a lot more money going offshore. Just running out of things to invest in here. Yeah. And it's great for diversification. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, you know, the Australia's got a lot of things going for it. Oh, very pro-Australian, very pro-South Australian. But, you know, you look at the all ordinaries, right? And if you buy the stuff, look at the stuff you buy every day in your home, the phones you're on, the TVs, whatever, not much of it's Australian. So don't get mad, just buy it. Get involved in the broader opportunity set that the global markets offer you. That could be equities, that could be bonds, that could be infrastructure, that could be private equity. I mean, and just allocate appropriately. As you move away from the traditional asset classes, the barriers and the complexity gets harder. So you've got to have the right governance structure. Do you have an internal team? Do you have appropriate consultants that have you? Do you have the appropriate board and investment committee structures that can understand this? So the game gets upped. It's a harder game to play. So so tell me about this. So part of that diversification is uh, about, from what you're saying, is about reducing your risk by um, reducing your ex- by being exposed to more things, so that if something does have a problem, right, you compensate. But at the same time, the increased complexity surely comes with its own set of risks. Exactly. Uh, so, so execution so, gets harder. Right. You know, do you have the appropriate set? Do you have the appropriate people working your team? Do you have the appropriate philosophy? Do you have your beliefs? Do you understand what you're doing? Australia has a nice thing that happened for the longest time. The Aussie dollar is a nice risk on, risk off. So going offshore when the Aussie was above a buck, say, in the US, was a great time. And I remember certain asset consultants, uh, not not the ones we were using, Jana, but certainly you should be fully hedged. And I said, that's nonsense. Look at the dollar. And they said, yeah, but look at the interest rate differential. And say, yeah, you are crazy. This is this the valuation. And buying unhedged international assets and watching that, uh, $1 go all the way back to what is it today, 73 and a half or whatever. And the risk on risk off nature of that is is a fantastic thing. Today you've got interest rate differentials somewhat against Australia because we're at one and a half and, and around the world it's a bit higher so it gets expensive to hedge. But the if the world goes crazy or Australia has a problem, the Aussie falls two, three, five, ten big figures. 
it's a really nice diversifying your portfolio to have a bit of foreign currency and exposure. Probably one of the big things that's underlied, you know, the continuing success of the um, the economy. Because if when the when things start to look bad, the Aussie weakens, which provokes this big surge in demand for all sorts of Australian products in return, particularly like tourism. You know, uh, it's all, it's twenty five percent cheaper now to come to Australia equal. than it was. Yeah, all yeah. things been equal. Australia has a good governance structure, right? We have proper separation of powers. We have property yeah, rights. Whatever laws. you think about our politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so let me undo what the, uh, we started off a bit negative. And we'll do that. <laughs> so when the Aussie falls uh, to the sixties, we're on sale to the rest of the world. And in fact, even us holding international assets, we can come back home because we've made a ton of money on this. We're typically less hedged. And we can put that money back work into into Australia. So the 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 flexible exchange rate is a is a wonderful thing for Australia. Um, and we've run a pretty good monetary policy setting. And there's a lot of debate where interest rates are now. Are they too high? Are they too low? There's an endless debate there. Mm. They seem about right. Although you know we're in negative real rates still. Um, if we see wage growth, employment growth. You would love to see the next rate hike, but you want to see wage growth and strong employment growth to continue. And that's why the politics, we get back to that. Mm. We don't want businesses to stop investing. Yeah. Well, well, this is the thing, isn't it? Uh, that, you know, the, the situation where nobody's quite sure who's going to be in charge at the end of the year. Um, so if you're thinking about some big uh, expansion plan in a business at the moment, uh, and this is how these decisions work in the real world and some of that the success of that plan might be contingent on some policy settings. So if it's settings. contingent on policy settings that's a problem. If it's not, it can grow. So yeah, small startups, small businesses, people disrupting, they can go ahead and do their thing because you know, they're not relying on government policy and, and all of that. You know, you know, Adam Smith had certain good things about him. We all do get up and figure it out ourselves because we want to bring home something at the table, right? And that's still, I think that still works, right? Someone can tell me if it doesn't, but that roughly still works. Where Australia has a problem is we have these oligarchies, right? And these oligarchies control key parts of, of the economy. And uh, oligopolies, oligopolies, oligarchs. Yeah, that was the Russians. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, oligopolies. Thank you for correcting me. Uh, but you know, yeah, and and that has some funny aspects to it. Whether it's banking, whether it's supermarkets, parts, yeah. supermarkets. Well, even the supermarkets, when Woolies ran such a high profit margin, it encouraged the Audis, the Costco's, yes. the Laders. It encouraged yeah. competition to come in. Yeah. It took a while, but you know that's the thing. If you're running really high profit margins, you're gonna. This is a fairly open economy still. You're gonna encourage people to come in and take it off you. And hopefully, we see that with energy. Yeah, um, it's certainly going to be. I mean, energy pol energy policy is in chaos. Uh, Peter Dutton has this. Uh, well, so the government's talking about caps. Nobody nobody knows what's going to happen. Basically, government's been talking about caps on prices, different mechanisms to push prices down. Uh, a triple C oversight, um, and uh, Peter Dutton now has been floating the idea. Uh, I mean, who knows? Maybe Scott Morrison might come through the middle on this. We, we were talking about this before, but Scott Morrison might. Uh, is a potential. We don't know. Who knows? Uh, it's it's only Wednesday afternoon, and a week <laughs> is a very very long time in Australian politics. Um, so. 
so yeah, the so energy sector uh, very much open to um, you know looks like there's going to be some change, some kind of changes. Even that the telco sector, I think today TPG and Vodafone things yeah. things happen, right? Yeah, it's yeah. an open, it's a it's a capitalist economy. Things happen, and and yeah, I think we we've been debating this a long time, and I think you asked me um, earlier about this. We, you can't react to short-term news. We're a long, medium-term pension fund. Yeah. Try and separate the noise and look at it to the future. Do you think the economy can grow? Are the current valuations, can you afford to buy at these valuations? Can you ride it out? What does that mean? What does the path look like? What does the risk look like? What's the return? You don't know, but you say, okay, let's put a pool of assets together. Let's deliver an outcome that beats inflation over you know 10 years. And if we do a good job, we'll be there. You mentioned earlier uh, the um, central banking, right? So the Fed has started this unwinding of its balance sheet. And when you see the chart of you know the assets on on the balance sheet, right, it was four point eight trillion, right, and so far they've eased off about half a trillion, I think. And then this is part of this, you know, redu- reduction in the supply of dollars has caused this upward pressure on the on the U.S. dollar, and some of it is probably, you know, as the weeks go by, some of it is is kind of the shorts getting. Uh, blown out and you know people just you know capitulating and say okay time to buy those dollars um going in for the uh the in- increased uh, return on uh, uh, u.s treasuries as well um as the outlook for those particularly short-term rates um pushing up as the the fed pushes up the front end of the curve right now at the end of last year everybody was talking about how this was going to happen right um you know that and also that i thought interestingly um QE gave you low inflation, low volatility, and high app, high asset prices, right? Particularly high equity prices. Um, what we're starting to see is slightly higher inflation, uh, higher volatility. Um, the asset prices are still high. Um, so I think the S and P on Tuesday um, hit uh, uh, all time highs again. Um, so, what's your outlook for this global for global equities? Let's start with global equities, and, and maybe you can talk about the ASX as well. Global equities in this era of so what QT? is global equities? So, when we think of global equities, we think of the all countries world index, ACWI, small cap, mid cap, large cap, US, non US, emerging markets. And I don't want to get into this factor investing, but we should talk about it, right? You can break down equities into factors. You can think about stocks, think about what factors do they represent. They have a value factor, a growth factor, a quality factor, a size factor. And if you look at it that way, the growth factor is expensive relative to the value factor. They all look expensive in the US, but you know, if there was a spread trade, you want to be more value than growth. The growth darlings, as personified by the fangs or whatever, have done very well. So value looks good. Outside the US, non-US over US looks better. And then emerging markets looks better than uh, developed non-US versus US. So you've got this sort of hierarchy happening and and all things being equal, you want us to have more value, you want to have more non-US, you, you want to tilt the portfolio as much. If you're going to sin, sin a little bit, not too much because you're either a hero or zero, but the, so the global market looks good on value, 
looks good outside the US, looks particularly interesting in emerging markets. Their currencies have collapsed, their share prices have collapsed. And you want to be buying this stuff, not selling this stuff as it's reacted to it. It's hard because it hasn't worked. Right. And every day you look at your value managers and go, oh, my God, <laughs> it's not working. But that's that's how if you're long term, that's where you yeah. want to tilt it. So that's interesting. Same in the US. Australia is a bit different because banks are such a big part of the benchmark. And then you've got miners, then you've got Telstra, and then you've got CSL. It's just a big part. So all the money is gravitated to the mid caps outside the banks. And those valuations are pretty exy, right? They're, they're up there. Um if there wasn't a bank, a credit crisis, if housing was okay and banks get through this, they look interesting, right? But they're highly geared puppies and they have very low at the moment a doubtful debt. So, you know, figuring that out, I'm not smart enough, but we allow our managers flexibility to, to figure it out. Interestingly, some of our value managers are picking up stocks like Telstra, stocks like Woolies, stocks like banks in this recent downturn, they're also buying commodities. So things that haven't worked, they're starting to tilt the portfolio to that. So so do you directly buy these? You direct We do it through our managers. We allow right, right. we run a multi-manager, they're predominantly active. It's very work active. This is the other thing about there's a big debate about active versus passive. Active for industry funds has worked really well. Active for statewide's been incredible. It's about I think it's Two and a half percent over ten years net of fees right. per annum. That's that actually adds a bit. So that that's working well, but it worked well in the small mid cap, and now large caps are starting to look interesting. The tech stocks, even in Australia, there's some crazy valuations on Afterpay or mm. Wise Tech. Wise Tech up thirty three percent. Yeah, today, that looks yeah. like a short squeeze to me. But yeah. there's just some really, you know, some really incredible valuations. I think as central banks tighten these long-duration, very expensive assets that maybe aren't run for cash profits and run on revenue or rep as a multiple sales will get found out. You know, some of us are old enough to remember the late tech bubble. People got absolutely slammed towards the end of that, and then it stopped in 2000. It was a golden period for value managers. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know when it comes, but you know that's that's where we're heading. It looks like a, the final melt up for 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 growthy type assets. Yeah, because well, so many people lost money; they liquidate yeah. everything. So yeah. um, those other stocks that you know, um, other stocks that get dragged down in the um, by the by the big downturn. I, I do believe um, what you said earlier. I believe that returns will be lower mm. because they've been so good. I think returns will be more volatile because they've been far less volatile. And the great tailwind of very low interest rates and negative interest rates will slowly play out to higher interest rates. Bank of England, the Fed. Okay, the RBA said we're not, we're not going to raise rates for, for what, 18 months or at least 12 months. But he has been saying lately that the next rate increase will be up. Mm. So we are going to be moving into, if you take a really long-term view, we're going to be moving into a world of higher rates and we'll see how resilient these very expensive valuations are. But maybe they are, right? But you don't want to be reliant on it. You certainly don't want all your money into a, into you know high-growth tech stocks with big multiples, mid-cap stocks that are growthy. And that's where we're seeing the money going. You probably want to go the other way. 
One of the things you touched on there, uh, important thing for uh, the ASX overall, but uh, is uh, the performance of the banks. Um, obviously, a big part of that is the uh, property market. We have to ask everybody who comes to the show, how do you think it's playing out? What do you think is going to happen? I've been so wrong on property. Uh, everyone, everyone makes fun at me at, at work. I said, you're the only Greek that's negative property. <laughs> <laughs> um, I should. I just recently sold something here in Sydney. Oh, it's, you know, if you're earning a hundred grand in Sydney, one, one of the many sellers. Uh, yeah, Sydney, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you're earning a hundred grand in in Sydney and you got to borrow seven, six, seven hundred thousand to get yourself a house somewhere near work, there's something. And they'll say, oh, that's rates are low. You can afford that. Yeah, but they're floating rates. And I, you know, and most of your money's been chewed off paying a mortgage. It's not. I mean, rates are low, and so people can pay it off. But you know, they need, they want wage increases so they can spend it on other things. I property is expensive, but I've been wrong for fifteen years on this. If property didn't move for the next five, ten years, and just let inflation slowly eat into it, that's a really Very good. Slowly. Yeah, that's a really good outcome. Property is an illiquid asset class. I don't know. Everyone says it's about credit creation. There's still credit growth is still growing. So people are buying houses. We are world gold medal level on mortgage debt. Household debt is really high. I don't know how it can go further. Maybe it does. But you know, you add that all up: high prices, low wage growth, excessive mortgage debt. Where does it go? I, I don't yeah. think it goes far. Yeah, there's. Um, I read a research paper recently about just uh, consumer debt and um, high levels of consumer debt. So when you get up into the sort of high triple figures, so the one fifty um, percent uh, sort of levels of of household debt, right? Yeah, yeah. That uh, these things are consistently shown um, at a local level in U.S. economies. So like a kind of state metro area level uh, and also also in national economies and it, look it's kind of obvious when people borrow too much there's a period of time afterwards where you get slower growth and the thing about that is um, obviously that growth is needed to help reduce the, jet, the debt so so you end up in this like very difficult situation where people are kind of optimistic and borrow but it hangs over the economy and either it works out very, very badly and something terrible happens and you get, over years, you maybe get some negative growth, uh, a recession, um, or you get very low growth for a long time and the debt is just an anchor there's, around the economy. There's a really interesting book that was published, oh, it must be at least five years ago. This Princeton economist, I think it's a Tiff Mian, he wrote a book about high personal debt, household debt, and how it drags and it can lead to bad outcomes, and they did it across the world. Mm. Really good book. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm of that ilk. But remember, this can last a lot longer, but I just can't see how it can move further. While we're negative, the, the, the one positive for Australia compared to the developed world, and the RBA governor talked about this, at least our median age in Australia is 37. And the, we've got very high immigration and that's causing issues, but the ages are 20 to 25. And so we're worried about a very... For uh, an aging, immigrants, that yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're worried about an aging workforce and demographics. We've kind of fixed that. If, uh, and we've had very strong immigration, right? And when I go to Sydney and Melbourne, it's clogged. 
So there, there are debates and it's causing issues. Big issues. The plus side, and I just want to try and be positive, is the plus side on that is we have a young immigrant, young people moving here who want to work, who want to do things, and that ultimately, hopefully, is a driver, human capital, uh, that will help us work it out. They're going to have to buy these houses off the old folks. I just don't think they want to pay that much for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, And, yeah, uh, like you say, if house prices go nowhere for a long period of time. Um, it's a good outcome. Then, yeah, yeah, the market will come back to them. And eventually, uh, you know, wages should start growing again. People get a bit more earning power and feel a little bit better. I mean, that's, I suppose, the, I suppose you'd call that the, the base case scenario, but also it's also, you know, that's the optimistic, uh, that's, that's where you can kind of go, look, as long as there's no massive external shock. Uh, I heard the RBI governor recently, and I could say this, there was no Chatham House rules. He said, you've got 2% inflation, 3%, or 5% nominal growth. Um, we're seeing some employment come through. We're seeing a little bit pick up in inflation and prices, house prices are starting to fall. He goes, that's good. Yeah. As long as it doesn't go out, but he goes, that's nothing to worry about. When you've had a 40% run up in Sydney, and let's say they fall 10, well, God, they were due, weren't they? Yeah. So <laughs> not, not a bad thing. That's right. Okay. Um, uh, so um, very quickly as well, can I just ask you just the um, allocation at the moment um, for you, uh, Australian equities? About 50-50, right. about 50-50 Aussie global. I, I suspect that the ratio will will blow out more to global and more to sort of international value and, and, and looking at the opportunities in emerging market. I think the sell-off... It's interesting, the sell-off in emerging market debt and equities and the people far smarter than me that run money and I've been asking them. You know, if, when you see a contagion, everything sells off because of Turkey or because of rising US rates, that actually creates an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so if you can block out the short-term noise, it may be a really interesting time to get set. The ones you want to avoid, though, the ones that are in a sort of a death spiral because they have got bad governance, they've got bad monetary policy, they've what's going on with their fiscal policy and their international accounts are just you know massive current account deficits that sort of you get the the negative feedback into their economy they're going to be in a world of pain yeah, it tips so, them into big recessions yeah yeah, yeah so yeah, you know yeah. the 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 venezuela and the turkeys of this world uh, it's tough i mean that could be a value trap do you see but, my, my probably my favorite story of the last week in financial markets uh, at the weekend venezuela devalued the currency by 95 percent and pegged it to uh, this petro crypto currency that they that the government has has created, so absolutely crazy stuff like end of days sort of you know um, the bolivar isn't isn't cheap enough. We need to try and do yeah, something and, uh, to devalue it by ninety five percent. It's just horrible. It's just I mean the poor people. They I mean that affects. It's just horrible, and so and, and they increased the minimum wage by three thousand percent. Right, so yeah, you do the math on that and yeah. see where that pump, pump pumps out, right? Yeah, it's, so <laughs> yeah it's like yeah, I've, I've, I take a hundred and devalue, I take one buck and I go up. Yeah, I'm not, yeah. I'm not doing well here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it's it's pretty bad. I, look, I I I do worry um, with the current geopolitical situation. If you've got President Trump who's thinking about sort of Pax Americana or the U.S. first. 
The US currency is unusual. It's an, inter it's an international currency. It's a domestic currency and it offers international. And that and the issues between the US and China, um, that's not a good outcome for the world. The markets have been fairly sanguine about it. Let's hope heads prevail. The US has enough checks and balances. His recent criticism of the of US Fed, I mean, he, he's sounding more like a, like an emerging market populist dictator than he is of a first world uh, US president. You know, it's in those situations where markets do things and you react to that opportunity set. You know, uh, I don't, we can't predict markets. We can't do short-term movements. The markets will do something and then we will react to it. You know, something happens. Has there been, has there been a day where you've taken a pretty, like, fast decision um, uh, this year based on some of these global moves? Has, has there been a day where you've gone, okay, well, we need to switch this out of that? No. No. Yeah. Now, that might be really surprising, but again, it's I an think people will be fascinated. It's to hear an that. interesting thing being a superannuation fund is if Con's sitting in Adelaide and says, I like pork bellies, they've gone down, let's move on this on a day. I mean, how can we do that? We just <laughs> we can't. But what we can do is saying, okay, value is being really the spread between value and growth, and I don't want to use factors, all right, that looks really interesting. Should we allocate more to value? Yes, so we've done in, in the US and global. Interesting to talk about central bank policies will now impact the world. So we're looking at macro funds. We've identified some systematic macro funds and even a good old-fashioned discretionary macro funds that we can allocate into the portfolio because they will have the flexibility to do what you're saying while I can give them money and as long as I think that the fees are right and they can make us money and you do the work. And you can yank it at any time if you go, you know, if you go, well, it's time to get out. Or trim trim your allocation. I, it, the other thing, and, and we hate trading our fund managers. The right. idea that I can trim manager X and manager Y, <laughs> uh, okay. it's more like manager X has gone through the roof, manager Y has underperformed, but we know the reasons. Let's take a little bit of profit to him and okay. rebalance back to sort of an idea. I, we do a lot less than, than the day-to-day -day market suggests because I just don't think we can move that quickly. And I don't think you want us to move that quickly. You want us to be a long-term uh, pension fund. Steady heads and, yeah, yeah. Um, and just quickly, bonds, how much are you? At 6% in bonds. Yeah. Um, it's roughly, I think it's roughly 50-50 between Aussie and international. And how much in cash are you now? About just under 8% in cash. Right. So, and that's coming. up. And then we have a defensive alternatives. There's a big debate in the superannuation industry. What's growth? What's defensive? What we haven't done is taken unlisted property or infrastructure. We've classified them as growth assets. For us, a defensive asset is something that has a bond-like volatility, maybe an investment-grade product, maybe a credit product, maybe a total return that has bond-like volatility. We understand that and we call that a defensive alternative. Everything else gets lumped in growth holds. Yeah, right. That's interesting. Or property or infrastructure, we call that growth assets. Yeah. Okay, look, um, very quickly, um, I can't believe uh, we've been here for the amount of time we have, but uh, rock music, you've got an excellent playlist. Um, what are you listening to lately? Um, yeah, Greta Van Vliet. So this is a young American band 
that sounds like Led Zeppelin. I, I have they, to they I, I was not like a rock guy them. until I was into my 40s. I actually grew up in the rave dance music. And and then there was before that it was like the post punk New Order, Joy Division, The Clash. And all of that was good because it was a reaction to the establishment. Now, like, I feel like the dance music and the clubs, they've become like a big business. And you've got these young bands <laughs> playing rock yeah. with guitars. You can see them live. It's just raw and I love it. So whenever I travel around the world or anywhere, I, I, I find a venue where I can see a band. Greta Van Vliet are great. Um, they are fantastic. They are. Um, I discovered them only a, a couple of months ago. Um, I went to see Nuno Betancourt, you know, the... Uh, uh, extreme but the band um, you know more than words yeah. but they also have all these great 80s um, pop songs or 80s rock songs and um, guitar rock yeah, but the guy I went with uh, it put me on to uh, Greta Van Fleet and I listened to them and I'm a huge Zeppelin fan right so is it Fleet uh, or Fleet yeah you're one of the yeah, yeah, I love yeah, them I love yeah. them I just heard them the other day and I, I can't I think I sang I said this is this is the thing there's a Aussie, a, a South Australian garage band called West Thebanon, <laughs> and and or Thebanon West, and they're three minutes, grungy garage guitar raw, love it, absolutely love it. You know, I, I, I'm liking this stuff. It's good. It's the guitar music's gone out, and I can see all these new bands coming in, and it's it's interesting. Yeah, it's good. I've been. I I, um, I also discovered there's another there's an Icelandic rock band. Um, they're called Kaleo, and you might know them from, you know, Suits, the uh, Netflix show about lawyers. I've never watched that, yeah. So I first came across these guys when one of their songs um, features in some episode, and I was listening to it, and I don't watch it. Uh, my better half watches it, and I heard that. And I thought, what is that? That's a really great song. I looked them up. Uh, and it was this kind of soft rock song. I looked them up, and the album is really heavy and really cool. Oh, must... right. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, K- uh, Kaleo, um, if anybody gets a chance, look them up. They've got an album called AB, and there's two songs on there, uh, Hot Blood, and the other one's No Good. If you want to crank up the uh, stereo, as I sometimes do if I'm doing a Bunnings run on a, on a Saturday morning, uh, you know, uh, go down to Bunnings with the windows down and uh, yeah. crank up the Kaleo um, or a bit of rock. Um, and Faith and More and uh, Audio Slave have been high on the road. Oh, they're great. Me, yeah. I, um, uh, I was in, like, I was in Los Angeles a couple of years ago and I walked across, went to this place called the Viper Room, which is famous. And they had this band oh, called yeah. Ravenscroft. Phenomenal, right? There's, there's four people in the band. The guy's really short and he's doing this sort of dark, sort of heavy rock and he's fabulous. And they stick around afterwards and have a beer at the bar. So that's what I like about it. It's more, it's just closer than this corporate stuff that, you know, you got to sit in rosette and get a nosebleed. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Like, well, as was the last time I saw Metallica, actually. But six miles. I still back like from them, the so I'm not gonna. I'm not yeah. gonna be critical. Yeah, no, no. I I, I love Metallica, but they um uh, they uh, yeah. The last time I saw them, you know, you needed binoculars and uh, still sounded pretty good. But um, anyway, look, you've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Our guest this week on the show has been Con Michalakis, Chief Investment Officer at Statewide Super. Con, thanks so much for coming on the Cheers. show. Uh, great to, to hear all your insights and the way you think about the world. Thanks, mate. Uh, You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. The show is produced by Rick Salter. We're on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. We are both on Twitter individually. That's Con Michalakis and myself, Paul Colgan. And we'll talk to you next time.